0: From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. At a congressional hearing this week, witnesses offered expert testimony about the need for reparations for the descendants of enslaved
1: Africans living in the United States. There have been deliberate attempts to marginalize African-American people, especially those who are formerly enslaved because of the interests of predatory capitalism. Despite the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, black people were treated as other and perniciously and viciously excluded from the possibilities of economic advancement.
0: And on this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, an activist says that Americans need to wake up and confront the reality of what this country is becoming
2: as more of these horror stories have come out, especially about what are factually concentration camps and what is happening to children and other very desperate and defenseless people on the border. It's become a little less controversial to use the label fascist for uh, this regime. These stories and much
0: more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. The New York Times reported that Donald Trump approved a missile strike on Iran on Thursday, but abruptly halted the operation. The averted attack, reportedly backed by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, National Security Advisor John Bolton, and CIA Director Gina Haspel, capped a week of heightening tensions during which Iran shot down a U.S. drone that Iran says violated its airspace. In national news, there were congressional hearings this week on reparations and on the national budget, where the Poor People's Campaign, led by the Reverend William Barber, presented what it called a moral budget that prioritizes human needs and slashes bloated military spending. Trump also officially kicked off his 2020 re-election campaign, and with me to talk politics is Jacqueline Lukman, co-editor of Lukman Nation, which airs on Facebook Live and on YouTube. She's also a journalist with The Real News Network. Welcome back to the show, Jacqueline. Thanks so much for having
3: me back, Esther.
0: Well, give me your take on the launch of Trump's re-election bid in Florida. By all accounts, it was packed with like 20,000 people, some of whom had camped out overnight. I saw or heard one report that he seemed to be taking aim at what he called radical socialist Democrats. I assume Bernie Sanders
3: sounds like he might be worried about Bernie. I think he is very worried about Bernie. And he is, I think, doing what he knows is going to work with his base, which is to play up the whole radical socialist, you know, the Red Scare. I mean, first of all, Bernie Sanders is anything but a radical socialist. He's not even really a socialist. His policies are pretty much FDR kind of New Deal light, sort of. I don't even know that he could be considered a democratic socialist in the vein of actual democratic socialist style countries that have a very robust social safety net, which is much more expansive than even what he's pushing for, But none of that matters to Trump's base, the Republican base, because they believe that capitalism is God. Even those among that base who are poor and are just as big of victims of capitalism as other poor people are. Basically, they are, um, what, what is the term, capitalists in waiting they're inconvenience capitalists. They're, they just haven't made it yet.
0: Well, it's kind of like, pay no attention to what's behind the curtain. Like how long people who don't have jobs or don't have good jobs and don't have health care and are driving on crumbling roads will be seduced by language as opposed to reality. I'm just wondering how that will play out as the campaign wears on in the next year.
3: I'm glad you brought that up because next week, When the first round of Democratic debates happens and Sanders will be on the stage with Biden and a couple of other candidates that are pretty much inconsequential, I think, Mm -hmm. if Trump supporters listen to Sanders during the debates, I think some of them will be moved to reconsider Trump's characterization of of Sanders as this, you know, crazy radical socialist, because the things that Sanders is advocating for are certainly things that working class and poor Americans need, which is better jobs, better pay, better health care or access to health care in general or at all, better public education, free college, uh, just a lifting of the capitalist burden, the capitalist yoke that the corporate masters of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have put on working in poor people. I think poor Republican voters, if they listen to the words coming directly from Sanders about what he wants, and if he frames his argument the way he did in his last speech, where he asked people, do you want good jobs? Do you want quality infrastructure? Do you want access to health care? Do you want a living wage? Then, if people are answering those questions, yes, I want those things, then the, then the argument about crazy radical socialists begins to fall apart. But a lot of people aren't going, a lot of, of Trump supporters aren't going to listen to what Trump has already called CNN, which is fake news. Some will, and I think they will be swayed. I'm just not so sure how many will brave the the Trump-declared fake news airwaves.
0: Well, I know Bernie did very well when he appeared on Fox News. So, you know, with that uh, dangling, that lure to, those, to that base of voters may have worked, and who knows, they may just decide to tune in for his debate anyway. <laughs> so, speaking of the Democratic field, Biden seemed to... Uh, I don't know if you want to say he stepped in it again in this week, week. Um, just as the huge focus on reparations was happening here in D.C., and you had a hearing, and you also had a huge town hall happening here in D.C., community grassroots town hall around reparations. He basically uh, recalled fondly his relationship with two major segregationists, Senator James Eastland of Mississippi and also, Herman Talmadge of Georgia, you know, kind of like hug a, hug a segregationist, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, it was a hug a
3: racist. Yeah, day for Joe Biden. <laughs> you know.
0: So anyway, what what kind of impact do you think that's having? He he was defiant. He basically said, "I don't have to apologize for that." He, he sounded like he felt picked
3: on. He did feel picked on. I'm sure he did because uh, I think what we didn't focus enough on. In 2008 and then again in 2012 was Biden's ego because those elections weren't about him. Those elections were not about Biden. So now, you know, we're having conversations. People are coming out and saying, "Wow, I don't know why people are making such a big deal about Biden now because nobody cared when he was, you know, when Obama chose him uh, as vice president. That's not really true. People did question Obama selecting Joe Biden as his running mate because of his record. Right. I think Obama, the Obama effect, Obama's, the, the promise of what Obama's presidency, at least the first term, might have meant what we hoped it would mean, overshadowed and kind of gave Biden a little bit of cover where people were like, all right, Biden is a mess and I've got serious problems with him, but he's not running for president, Barack Obama is, and and I'm going to give my vote to Barack Obama. I think that's the rationale people made um, in 2008. Now Biden is running for president again, so he isn't running on anybody else's record. Nobody else can cover him uh, and, and his record it's all exposed and he has to answer for himself. Um, But he's been around for so long and he is so incredibly out of touch that he is not going to accept any criticism that anything he's done in the past is wrong. And just I think that what makes it worse is that he uses these two people as the examples for look at how well I can work across the aisle Working with those people to get their agenda passed is not noteworthy, and he doesn't get that because his ego won't let it.
0: Yeah, I haven't had a chance to actually look into what types of things he says they got done. Like, what was it, like uh, mass incarceration? Or, like, (laughs) what kinds of things did they get done? But I'm rapidly running out of time, and I realized I wanted to hit... Three more things uh, really quick. So before Trump's launch, he made this vow to deport one million immigrants from the country. And was this just a warming up for his big launch or, or what was this?
3: He, he said he was going to do it. And I think he has announced either yesterday or today that uh, ICE agents are prepared to make all of these mass arrests and if people think that local police departments are not going to cooperate with ICE and border patrol to carry this out people are sadly sadly mistaken wow. this is just an extension of the kind of abuse and lack of humanity that our law and that not our that the law enforcement of this country has toward people who are not white
0: yeah, we're actually following I I mean I think as you know, uh our the Prince George's County Maryland Police Department you know, who have turned over to undocumented single moms to ICE, people with no criminal record and, you know, leaving their children to fend for themselves here. So we really have to, um, keep an eye on whatever police departments that we have any agency over in terms of being residents of an area and really looking to see what your police department is doing, you know, with your tax dollars. And if you, do you want your tax dollars being used? for this type of, of harassment and illegal, you know, deportation of people without any type of due process, or do you want them to actually like go after criminals, you know? Right. So, real quick, the poor people's campaign candidates forum. Anything new come out of that for you?
3: Well it was interesting that Tulsi Gabbard was not present and I don't know if she was not able to attend, but I would have liked to have heard her Uh, Speak on that stage. Elizabeth Warren was, people are warming up to Elizabeth Warren, and I think that's a good thing, but I think her policies need to be closely examined for their impact, too. But it was a good forum because they focused more on the politicians, the candidates committing to address militarism in relation to poverty uh, and inequality.
0: Yeah. And that's why I also would have liked to see Tulsi Gabbard there because she is actually the most out front of all the candidates in terms of rejecting these continuous, what she calls regime change wars and linking the fact that we can use that money here at home instead. Right. Right. Well, my guest has been Jacqueline Lukman, co-editor of Lukman Nation and a journalist with The Real News. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you so much. In local news, I recently caught up with young activists working to prevent police in Prince George's County, Maryland, from collaborating with officers of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, or ICE. So uh, I'm out here at the Juneteenth celebration, and there are a lot of uh, young people here from Casa de Maryland, and so uh, they want to talk to us about what's happening with the police in Prince George's County. So uh, tell me your name and where you're from and and
4: your story. Uh, my name is Jorge Benitez Perez. I've been living in Prince George's County since I came to the US at age six. My mother has been here for almost 15 years now. Last summer, a county officer stopped her and arrested her in Heightsville and drove her down to Sandy Springs where he turned her over to a ICE agent.
0: Well, and why did he stop her?
4: He stopped her because he said she was speeding, and I'm, I'm familiar with once you when you're speeding, you get a ticket. Right. You don't get arrested for speeding. My mother got arrested, and now she's facing deportation because of this officer's actions.
0: So he he chose to take it beyond a ticket because he perceived her as someone who might be an immigrant. Is that it?
4: Yeah, I guess he's one of the people that believes in the false rhetoric the president is spreading and he decided to follow along and turn my mother over to an ICE agent without knowing her story that she's been here without a criminal record, working, providing for her two children and being... uh, somebody who contributes to her community through taxes, through staying out of trouble, through making sure we're out here not doing the wrong thing, doing the right thing for everyone.
5: Right, okay. So tell me your name, your information, and the petition that you're circulating today. Yeah, so my name is Gabriela Hernandez. I'm a DACA recipient. I've been here since I was about four years old, and um, I'm an advocate. And so today we were out here trying to collect signatures for a petition we have going that's helping us with showing the our officers, our officials, that the community members agree with us that, one, the police should not work as ICE. They are not ICE, ICE is federal, they are state, and they should remain that way. Another thing is, we want them to stop using their gang database. Their gang database has no actual truth to it. They can put anybody in that, and once your name is there, it can never be taken off. They use that as a very discriminatory t- thing. They, they pick who they put on there, and it's all discrimination. Another thing that they've been doing is, not all officers wear body cams. Only one in ten officers wear body cams. Why aren't they all wearing body cams? So our petition was to show that not is it not, it's not just that Gaza wants this; it's that our community wants this. And so today we got to meet tons of people who had never even heard of Gaza and had no idea that we do stuff like this. And we're really just pushing that if we want something changed, we can change it.
0: In D.C., the formation of the Save Our Votes Political Action Committee was announced this week on the anniversary of the day that D.C. voters approved a measure to increase the pay of restaurant workers, and then the D.C. council later counseled the vote of the people. In a statement, the new PAC says that it will, quote, educate, expose, seat, and unseat candidates who are antithetical to hopes and aspirations of the poor and working people in our city, end quote. Also in D.C., where the high cost of housing is displacing poor, working-class, and even middle-class residents, there was a hearing this week about tax credits for building affordable housing. Chantel James has
6: more. Tuesday, the D.C. Department of Housing and Community Development held a public hearing to seek comments on the 2019 Qualified Allocation Plan, or QAP. Updated from 2017, this plan gives credits to housing projects that comply with federal regulations for what constitutes fair housing according to the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program. It provides incentives for investors to develop, maintain, and rehabilitate low-income housing. After a brief presentation outlining updates to the QAP, members of the public presented their questions and critique. Brian Howard of the U.S. Green Building Council was among those who offered feedback stressing the importance of green design in a consideration of affordable, accessible
2: housing. The benefits of green building, again, as I mentioned, whether it's good operating costs, so the reduced utility consumption, those mean a lot to people uh, with limited means. Um, And so we should make sure that those, uh, those benefits and those services are available to all residents of the city.
6: The D.C. Department of Housing and Community Development will take public comments into consideration and released the final 2019 Qualified Allocation Plan on June 28. From Southeast D.C., this is Chantal James. Also in culture and media, the Stop Police
0: Terror Project D.C. is holding a liberation fundraiser June 21st, 6 to 9 p.m. at the Smith Public Trust in Northeast D.C. The 40th anniversary of the Great Labor Arts Exchange is happening through June 23rd at the Tommy Douglas Conference Center in Silver Spring, Maryland. And visual artist Sonia Clark will give an artist talk on her Beaded Prayers project Wednesday, June 26, 6 p.m. at the George Washington University Museum and Textile Museum. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, what economist Julianne Malveaux had to say about the need for reparations for African Americans. Stay with us.
7: Many suggestions and documents written. They gave
6: us pieces of silver and pieces of gold to tell me who paid reparations on
7: my soul.
0: Our next witness is Dr. Julian Malbo. Dr. Malbo is a labor economist, noted author, and f- frequent media commentator. She also served As the 15th president of Bennett College for Women, America's oldest historically black women's college, thank you for your coming and you're recognized for five minutes.
1: I am delighted to be here because this hearing is not on time, it's like overtime. It's more than time for us to deal with the injustices that African-American people not only have experienced in history, but continue to experience. I'm an economist, so economics is a study of who gets what, when, where, and why, It's a study of the way the factors of production are paid. The elements are land, labor, capital, and the secret sauce. Some people call it entrepreneurial ability. Some call it creativity. Land gets rent, labor gets wages, capital gets interest, and the secret sauce gets profits. But the work of predatory capitalists is to figure out how to extract more from the factors of production toward capital and away from people. And we've seen that in the past three decades with our own economy. But more importantly, enslavement was about the devil's work of predatory capitalism. Indeed, enslaved people got no wages, and we represented capital for other people. And so after enslavement, first of all, enslavement was the foundation on which our country was built. So anybody who says, well, I didn't have any slaves, no, you didn't have to have any. What you had to do was experience them, enjoy the fact that they were here, enjoy the fact that their labor made it possible for there to be a Wall Street, a bond market, and all of that. But beyond that, but beyond that, I want to speak specifically to Section 3B3 of the legislation. That's a part that talks about the federal, the federal and state laws that discriminate against formerly enslaved Africans and their descendants who are deemed United States citizens. Basically, there have been deliberate attempts to marginalize African American people, especially those who are formerly enslaved, because of the interests of predatory capitalism and because it was expedient to maintain the status quo of having free black labor and to prevent wealth accumulation. Despite the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, black people were treated as other and perniciously and viciously excluded from the possibilities of economic advancement. The Emergency Land Fund documented the reduction of black land ownership between 1910 and 1969 from 16 million acres to 6 million acres. How and why? Land grabs, tax schemes, faulty deeds, and downright force. My own family in Moss Point, Mississippi, experienced the expropriation of land through a moving fence like the fence moved one night. We used to have the land and we didn't have the land. Years later, after a couple of cousins were lynched, they changed the name of the land to Hawkins Lane so they named it after us, but we didn't get it back. Uh, Joseph Brooks in 1978 estimated that black folks were losing 6,000 acres of land per week. And we saw what happened with the agriculture department. The post-enslavement case for reparations can be made by examining racially hostile public policy and government complicity to white supremacy. You all have an article that I wrote for the ACLU that talks about several cases, Memphis, Wilmington, North Carolina, Tulsa, Oklahoma, but these were the tip of the iceberg. This happened everywhere. The journalist Ida B. Wells said that lynching was the first example of white supremacy because it was a tool of terrorism. It dampened the ability of African-American people to participate in the vibrant entrepreneurship of the late 19th and early 20th century with a chilling message that our economic success could be punished by the rope. The economic damage to black people post-Reconstruction can be summarized in three ways. Number one, we were denied the ability to participate in our nation's economic growth. The Homestead Act of 1862 did not include formerly enslaved people. More than 10% of the continental U.S. land was distributed to recent immigrants from Europe, but not black folks. So the 40 acres and a mule was given to somebody else, not us. These folks were able not only to get land, but then to get grants from the federal government to develop their land. Meanwhile, African American people were denied the right to these wealth transfers. Secondly, we were denied the right to accumulate. The attached, uh, the paper that I mentioned talks about how our accumulation was essentially stymied by lynching. The first lynching that Ida B. Wells examined was one when a black man had the nerve, the utter nerve, to open up a grocery store near a white man's store. So the white man had a brother lynched, had three people lynched because of economic envy. Listen to those words, economic envy. This is how black people have been suppressed in their ability to accumulate. Tulsa, Oklahoma, Wilmington, North Carolina, long stories, and I don't have any time to talk about them. But I want y'all to look at the paper that I submitted and to think about the many ways that black people who tried to participate, tried to encourage, tried to be a- American simply tried to be economic actors, were suppressed because they had the nerve to think it worked. So my brothers over here who say their, their American dream is some people's American nightmare. Let's just be clear. Now, number three is public policy hostility. There's public policy hostility to black people. GI Bill legislation truncated opportunities for African-American veterans federal housing administration, reinforced redlining and segregation as an official policy of the federal government. You, people talk about racists as if they're individuals, yes sir, but the fact is that they're not individuals, they're individuals who are buttressed by the federal government and legislation. So let me simply say, H.R. 40 is important, NARC has developed a 10-point plan, but more importantly, as you, my brothers and sisters on this Congress, go forward, May there be a racial justice audit of any new legislation that has economic implications. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to economist Julianne Malveaux testifying before a House Judiciary Subcommittee on June 19, 2019. The subcommittee hearing was exploring reparations for African-Americans. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us.
5: Call
6: my brother a junkie Say he ain't got no job, no job
0: This is On the Ground, ground onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Everam. And for more international news, including more news about reparations, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horne. And Gerald, I know you watched the hearing and a lot of the proceedings happening here this week. So I know that's top on your list. So what's your take on what you saw and heard?
7: Well, the hearing took place, as you know, on Juneteenth, June 19th, just a few days ago, which was quite appropriate since it marks, in a certain sense, the anniversary of the end of slavery, officially, in the United States, based upon what happened in Galveston, Texas, on June 19th, 1865. The hearing focused on H.R. 40, a bill to establish a commission to study the matter of reparations to the descendants of enslaved Africans in the United States of America, a bill introduced routinely by the former Detroit congressman, John Conyers, and now taken up by the congresswoman from Houston, Texas, Sheila Jackson Lee. The takeaways, from my point of view, is that absent... Any sort of global movement to propel this legislation, uh, it'll probably be dead in the water. Uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader and the majority leader in the Senate, who styles himself as the Grim Reaper, providing over a graveyard of progressive initiatives and pieces of legislation, uh, attacked H.R. 40 uh, before the hearing, and it was attacked in turn by Ta-Nehisi Coates during his testimony. Another takeaway, uh, I'm afraid to say, is that since the United States was based upon slavery, uh, it was founded in no small measure to evade the logic of the abolitionist movement which was growing in London in the 1770s. Uh, and this helps to explain why there are so many Confederate monuments in this country why the founders of this country and those who adorned the currency were slave owners like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And given that rather odious history, it's understandable why this legislation will be dead in the water absent any sort of global push and global initiative. And I trust and I hope that the organizers, the reparations organizers, are fully aware of that.
0: To start this week uh, there was the death of former Egyptian President Morsi and in a a rather shocking way just uh, collapsing in court and and then uh, being declared dead shortly thereafter. What do you think is going to happen in Egypt now and what does his death mean really for that country since
7: the Arab Spring. Well, just to refresh the recollection of the audience, Mohamed Morsi has been billed as the first democratically elected president in Egypt, elected uh, in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, so-called, of 2011, uh, when his predecessor, Hosni Mubarak, was swept out of office by massive protests and demonstrations uh, leading to the election of Mr. Morsi within months on a ticket led and headed by the Muslim Brotherhood, of which he was a prominent member. Uh, The Muslim Brotherhood, I'm afraid to say, is despised and hated by the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and the Saudi Arabians, and the Saudi elite, of course, helps to propel the Egyptian economy. And they maneuvered assiduously to drive him out of office, which took place in 2013 with his overthrow by a man who he thought was trustworthy, his defense minister, General al-Sisi, who is still in office. I should also say that in the context of Muslim politics that the Muslim Brotherhood is not despised by Turkey and its president, Erdogan. And in fact, President Erdogan has been rather sharp in his criticism of the maltreatment and mistreatment of Mr. Morsi, who was jailed after he was overthrown, and not only jailed, but received inadequate medical treatment for his various illnesses that included diabetes. And I think that that led directly to that dramatic scene in an Egyptian courtroom just a few days ago when he collapsed and then was taken to a hospital and was pronounced dead. Now, General Al-Sisi during his reign has become quite close to the 45th U.S. president. General Al-Sisi has spent a small fortune in buying arms from Germany and France and Britain, and that has helped to curb critique of his maladministration in the corporate media, despite the fact that there are countless numbers of political prisoners wasting away in Egyptian prisons. Right now, it seems that the maladministration of General al-Sisi is uh, motoring along, and that's not good news, I'm afraid to say, for Africa. It's not good news for the Arab world. And in the first instance, it's not good news for the Palestinians, particularly in the neighboring Gaza Strip.
0: Well, Africa and Africans, but on the U.S. border and part of the immigration surge, what is this all about?
7: Yeah, it's been quite remarkable the number of stories that have appeared of late about a stream of folk from the African continent making their way to the U.S. border with Mexico and in fact uh, streaming into San Antonio, Texas and some making their way all the way to Portland, Maine where a basketball arena has been requisitioned in order to provide a roof over the heads of families, including small children. What's happening in part is the fact that In central West Africa, I'm speaking of, for example, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the Central African Republic, and to a certain extent, the Republic of the Congo, the neighbor of the DRC, uh, there's a deteriorating political and economic situation. I'm sure you've seen the stories about the upsurge of Ebola in the DRC and the ethnic tension that just a few days ago it was reported. That it caused uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, to flee their home, uh, scattering pell mell uh, to the east in Africa. And so, what's happening is that people are uh, making loan, taking out loans, and taking out money from the bank, and trying to fly to Brazil, where it's not necessarily uh, it's not necessary to have a visa. And then, after entering Brazil making their way north, believe it or not, all the way to the border with Mexico, with people dying along the way, with women giving birth along the way. It's quite a sad and tragic story. And I'm afraid to say, in some ways, it complements another tragic pan-African migration story, that is to say the thousands of Haitians who have made their way to Tijuana, Mexico, just across the border from San Diego, California, uh, who have been languishing there for months now. And this is an unfortunate aspect of the story of migration.
0: These are stories that will keep following up. So I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horne. Thanks for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. This is On the Ground, ground OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averum. Now, despite the fact that most Americans favor a Medicare-for-all approach to guarantee health care for everyone, sponsors of the Medicare-for-all legislation are facing the headwinds of corporate media and corporate-backed politicians in both parties. This week it was reported that a group of Republican lobbyists and strategists aligned with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell Is launching a multi million dollar ad campaign against Medicare for All in advance of next week's first Democratic presidential candidate debates on June 26th and June 27th. That campaign is rightly perceived by Senator Bernie Sanders as an attack against him since the health care legislation has been his signature issue. Since the end of May, the Sanders backed organization Our Revolution has been traveling the country in an ambulance in what they call the Medicare for All emergency tour targeting protests at Democrats that do not support Medicare for all. And that campaign started with a protest against Maryland representative and House majority leader, Steny Hoyer. My next guest, Lena Thorne, an organizer with Refuse Fascism Chicago, joined the tour at a rally in the Windy City, calling out Chicago's representative, Dan Lipinski, for his failure to support expanded health care. She's my guest for this month's episode of The F Word. Welcome to On the Ground, Lena.
2: Hi, good to be here.
0: Well, most of the discussions we've had on the show with anti-fascist organizations have usually involved opposition to street actions, right-wing Nazi, KKK, and other fascist organizations. So what made you show up and speak out on a platform about health care?
2: Well, so Refuse Fascism is a, a national organization the website is refusefascism.org and I'm part of the Chicago chapter and we formed sort of in response to the election of Donald Trump back in 2016 so going back to you know the campaign itself we identified Trump and his agenda and the administration the regime that he was putting together as fascist the rhetoric was explicitly racist, and the agenda that they were actually putting forward of, quote unquote, make America great again, is a fascist program of ethnic cleansing. And this is an emergency for really the planet and for humanity, and it has to be addressed as such. So that's the backdrop to what we did here in Chicago uh, with Dan Lipinski. You know, the thing is, you don't stop fascism, you don't oppose fascism by caving, by conciliating, by accommodating to any aspect of it. And Lipinski is a, a Democrat. He's got the D next to his name, but his politics are really abhorrent. He is a, a misogynist. He's against you know women's right to choose uh, abortion. And he actually, you know, has opposed the expansion of same-sex marriage. He, you know, has gone on record, voted against that in various ways and spoken out. So it's really, it's the point here was that he's an example, of, you know, pretty much exhibit A of the problem with this approach of not just moving to the center, but really conciliating with the most extreme fascist politics in this country that's advocated by the leadership of the Democratic Party.
0: So for this series uh, of segments on fascism the F word we've used as a touchstone for the series a statement by 1960s revolutionary George Jackson who defined fascism as when the corporate agenda and the government agenda or the actions by corporations and the government become indiscernible in terms of corporate power, basically running the government. And so I'm wondering in the case of healthcare, what are those links that you make between, I guess, the corporate power of the medical industry and the healthcare for all Americans?
2: Yeah, well, and I'm particularly interested in, the way that this works alongside the attack on women's right to abortion and birth control actually, which is health care, but it's also more than health care because you know, without the ability to control our own bodies, to have, you know, basic, you know, bodily autonomy we don't have the ability to uh, make any substantial decisions that affect our lives in, in other respects. It's it's a really fundamental right. And it's it's been sort of this cornerstone of the fascist movement in this country, particularly the Christian fascist movement um, going back decades. You know, if you look at sort of what they've said about it, they see... The right to abortion as being sort of this turning point in in changing the culture uh, in this country, in allowing women to have the ability to you know to decide for ourselves when and if we're going to have children has been decisive to our full participation or at least you know our attempts at full participation throughout society. And so, for decades, this has been just a cornerstone of their agenda and it's included violence as well you know we know that doctors have been murdered and clinic staff have been murdered by their ground troops but it reaches you know all the way up to the pinnacles of of power and right now is includes the white house there's a reason that trump continues to spread these abhorrent lies and whip up his rallies with these stories, these vile stories about newborn infants being murdered. They're not true, right? But that doesn't matter. We know that he lies right and left and his people, his base, eat it up. They believe it. And it whips them into this kind of a frenzy of you know, good versus evil, where they are on the good side. And, you know, the opposition is completely evil. And so I think that, you know, this is is really something that we have to pay attention to and see the connections between all of what's happening and sort of how it, it fits together for them. Now,
1: I have
0: a clip of you speaking in Chicago. And in that speech, you you call out Trump and Pence as fascist. So tell me a little bit about that. You know, I've been doing these segments for more than four years. And despite policies on, you know, tax cuts for the corporations and the super rich, uh, despite stripping people of health care. And as you say, you know, really going after uh, women's basic right to control our bodies. What, you know, uh, even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called this week concentration camps on the border where immigrants are being you know, treated in a really horrific way. Despite all these things, there's lots of pushback on calling the extreme right fascist. Maybe, you know, people don't think it can happen here. People really push back on using that term, you know, maybe because they're scared of it. So what's your reaction to that?
2: Yeah, and uh, it's been a struggle. I mean, I think that's part of why we haven't succeeded in mobilizing the critical numbers necessary to actually oust this regime yet, but is is sort of uh, shying away from confronting the true implications of that. And I think the thing is, as time has gone on, as more of these horror stories have come out, especially about what are factually concentration camps and what is happening to children and other very desperate and defenseless people on the border, it's become a little less controversial as we've gone on to use the label fascist for uh, this regime. But yeah, it's not enough to, to get to the point that we're calling them fascist. We have, you know, the the point here is to then sort of confront the fact that politics as usual and, and even activism as usual is not commensurate with the challenge that's before us. It, it's not going to be possible to, you know, speak truth to power and sort of exert enough pressure so that they accede to our demands. It really is contest of power at this point. For Trump, you know, might makes right And he is in power, he has the power, and he potentially won't leave power, even if through the election he doesn't win in 2020, right? He and his people have basically alluded to as much, and Michael Cohen explicitly warned about it when he testified in Congress. We need to grapple with it, and I understand why it it might be scary for folks, but It's not going to get any better by hoping and just relying on uh, what we see as quote-unquote tried-and-true methods. People right now in places like Hong Kong and Sudan and Algeria and uh, in recent years in South Korea who have demonstrated the power and the potential for mass nonviolent sustained protest and that's really where we need to look to for inspiration because the stakes have really never been higher so i do think that the evidence shows that this government is fascist and we're not going to you know do ourselves any favor by calling them something else or pretending that uh, that's not really what we're facing.
0: So, you know, we were just involved in a lot of the uh, mobilization outside of the Venezuela embassy here where I think many of us felt that we were confronting the extreme right (laughs) there and many of us were uh, assaulted. There were uh, misogynist, racist epithets uh, hurled at us by the uh, right-wing uh, Venezuelans there, the Guaido people. And in a way, there was like this kind of capsule experience of of what it would be like to confront people who really, they may be living in this country, but they're coming from situations where they have been allowed to act more openly in a in a fascist way. And uh, I think it was surprising to so many of us, (laughs) but it was an eye-opening experience for sure. So it seems like information is a big part of what you're talking about. So how much of a role does the corporate media play, you think, in terms of keeping people blind or keeping people really uh, ignorant really of of what's really going on and and I say that in in the sense of I'm looking at the whole uh focus of the media the corporate media on Russia and Russia gate during the past two and a half years as opposed to some of the kinds of corruption and the real harm to people. That is really happening. So, we don't really hear a lot about Flint still happening. People don't still have clean water. You know, how so many other cities are experiencing the same. You know, our children are being poisoned. And how, after an initial flurry, you don't really hear that much about the conditions of people on the border. And just so many things like that. Just the number of people dying because they don't have health care, you know. Uh, Their states didn't opt for Medicaid for all, Medicaid expansion. So people are being killed. People are dying because they don't have health care. It's never put in those types of stark terms, you know, maybe a little in the opioid crisis and the. Family Sacklers, have been kind of pointed out by some media, but it's not really a thing in the mass media. Similarly, all the tens of thousands of children dead in Yemen because we're uh, giving arms to the Saudis. So what can you say about uh, the corporate media in terms of your organizing?
2: Well, yeah, exactly. I'm really glad you brought that up, especially the Russia Mueller investigation, which I think was, um, part of corralling and channeling, um, people's, uh, anger in a really, really counterproductive way. I mean, I've literally, uh, been at protests where people have come up to me and accused me of being a Russian bot because, uh, the attention that I'm drawing to some of the actual policies and crimes that, uh, regime is carrying out and not confining the criticism to this this Russia stuff you know it's scandalous and i would say that the media is at fault but i would also hold the leadership of the democratic party to account as well there's been a concerted effort to prevent any kind of more in-depth look at these very specific crimes and in some cases it's because there's actual agreement with some of these policies. So the threats of war against Venezuela, I think is a, you know, prime example, you know, the leadership of the Democratic Party is not against those threats of war and would most likely, you know, just cheer on the Trump regime if they actually launch some kind of a military intervention of some kind, you know, whether it's in all-out war or, you know, some kind of more covert action against Venezuela.
0: Which has already happened in terms of their electrical grid being attacked. And, you know, the sanctions are war. The economic sanctions are an ongoing war and attack, even though bombs aren't falling. Children are dying there. People are dying because they don't have medicine. And it's not because their government is backward or not serving the people, but you know no country can survive under those type of draconian sanctions where your very ability to to sell your resources are are stopped, and your resources that you do have have been um seized in a real gangster way by the United States, and you don't even have access to your own money
2: in the bank and your own gold <laughs> so yeah, no exactly, and you know these are human beings. And we, you know, our lives are not more important than anybody else's lives, um, you know, anywhere on the planet. And we should be just as outraged and scandalized by what's happening to people there um, as we are, you know, anywhere here. Yeah, the slogan that we're fighting for is Trump and Pence must go. And so I think no matter what you're fighting for, whatever your, you know, the issue that's nearest and dearest to your heart, we have to reckon with the fact that nothing good is going to be possible with this regime in power. And that is not to say that everything is going to become better you know, if and when we actually oust this regime. But the thing is, if we, the people, took to the streets and actually forced out these bloodthirsty fascists from power, the possibility um, for much more radical change, for people's uh, imaginations to be expanded, for their hopes and aspirations to be expanded, would be so much greater. So I, I think that there's all different types of issues that need to be brought to bear, you know, The environment, the destruction of our our planet that is just escalating uh, under this this regime, you know, whatever it is, you know, that's that's most motivating for you. We need to come together and we need to we need to do um, what we need to do and we need to oust this regime.
0: And I know I said that was the last question, but i have to I have to get this one in so now, in terms of your uh platform that i that I scanned over so in terms of ousting Trump, are you all calling for impeachment? Some people believe that by calling for impeachment, you basically fire up Trump's base and he just uses that to get more support among his base as opposed to pushing them out through the electoral process. Or do you think that mass demonstrations will like force him to resign? I mean, I can't see that happening, but what's your take?
2: Well, I I think that he should be impeached. I mean, you know, if if he's not eligible for impeachment then who is really you know <laughs> okay. so i think that there's no question it's it would be the right thing to do why aren't uh, the democrats doing it mm-hmm. why is nancy pelosi so dead fast set against initiating any kind of impeachment process i think we have to reckon with that you know right. and right. The fact is they're not getting ready to do it. And so, you know, again, it's it's up to us and it can't be turned into some sort of a waiting game where we just continue to hope and pray that they're going to open up some investigations that are going to ultimately bring him down. And the fact is his base is already pretty riled up, you know, like if you, I know it's not a pretty sight to watch these, you know, video clips from his campaign rallies. But these are people who are, uh, you know, screaming for blood already without, you know, the real threat of impeachment. So literally, you know, I mean, there was the guy in Florida who shouted out something about shooting down immigrants. And Trump just laughed it off and said, oh, you know, that's what you guys say in Florida. Ha ha ha. It's so funny. These are like Nuremberg-style rallies where you're seeing that kind of bloodthirsty, genocidal kind of fervor being built up. And, you know, yes, you know, we're not encountering it, you know, in our blue state enclaves, really, you know, face-to-face way. But there's millions of people who support this agenda, and we are not going to do ourselves any favor by pretending that they don't exist.
0: Yeah. Well, I suppose when you really talk about nonviolent confrontation, all you can do is to take to the streets. Well, I've been speaking with Lena Thorne. She's an organizer with Refuse Fascism Chicago, and she's been my guest for this month's episode of The F Word. Thank you for joining me today, Lena.
2: Thanks so much, Esther.
0: And Lena Thorne from Refuse Fascism Chicago will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Go to onthegroundshow.org to support us, work with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook, on Twitter under On the Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. And better yet, join our supporters on Patreon. The music we played this hour was Who'll Pay Reparations on My Soul by Gil Scott Heron from his Small Talk at 125th and Lennox album. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.